when we truly grasp the foundational realities of our existence, our faint hearts explode into lives of joyful offering to the one who's worthy of our all. If we can just leave that up there for a little bit here. That, that, that statement, or statements, means a few things. First, there really is a reason we exist. And there are foundational realities that we must understand. We must grasp them. Second, there's a grasping that is effectual, effective, actually um, moves us somewhere, and there is an ineffectual grasping of something that really doesn't take us anywhere meaningful at all. It ends up being futile. Third, there is a dreariness and hopelessness to a life that does not truly grasp. And I emphasize the word truly. So if you don't truly grasp those foundational realities of our existence, there is dreariness and there is utter hopelessness, especially in the end. Fourth, each of us finds something or someone to offer our lives to. The question is, is that thing or person worthy of it all? Because we give our lives to something, we give our lives to someone, the question is, is that someone or is that something worthy of your all? Because you've given it to them or to it. The question that was asked kind of from the microphone here, is it, is it truly God? When we truly grasp the foundational realities of our existence, our faint hearts explode with lives of joyful offering to the one who's worthy of our all. We must grow to grasp at least three things. I'm going to pull three things from the text this morning. There are three questions, really, that we will consider. But the three main points today is this. We must grasp that we belong to God. That's the first thing. Second is we must grasp that there is incomparable hope in the Son. And third, we must grasp that the Son is worthy of our all. So first, verses 20 through 26, we must grasp that we belong to God. In verse 19, again, as we ended two weeks ago, we read that the scribes and the chief priests were just very upset after they rightly understood the parable that Jesus told them about the vineyard and, and the workers and... and um, and uh, they were upset about that to a point where they wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted to kill him. So they, they um, but they, they couldn't. They didn't want, I mean, they wanted to really bad, but they were scared of the people. And so the fear of the people kind of usurped that desire to, or at least the intention and action to destroy Jesus in the moment. But they're, they kind of got back together and they began to consider, okay, how can, how, can we, how can we work this out? How can we deal with this? And so they sent spies. Um, they hatch this plan. And that plan stems from fury and stems from arrogance, misunderstanding, all, entire unbelief, uh, rejection. I said that two weeks ago. It was the trajectory of rejection. This was a heart that was hardened towards God, and th these were hearts that were hardened towards God. And so they began to get this plan together, they sent spies into the crowd. Spies who would flatter Jesus, as we see in the text, try to gain his trust, and then come in for the kill. Um, 
They thought either that he, they, they could get him in trouble with Rome or, or get him in trouble with the people. Either way, their, their desire is to catch him, to corner him and get him in trouble. So the stage is set, verse 20. Spies have been sent in. They feel it's time. The, Matthew's accounting in chapter 22 tells us that these spies are the Pharisees' disciples, along with a group of people called the Herodians, who are a group of people who want the Herodian family to uh, kind of get con- continue in power and to grow in power. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians usually would not see eye to eye, but they do see eye to eye when it comes to Jesus. They don't like him at all. Um, So they become bedfellows as it concerns their fear of and their despising of Jesus. So they ask the question, Luke chapter 20, verse 21 and 22, Teacher, we know that you speak rightly, speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly, truly you teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Simple question. And sure enough, you know, flattery or not, Jesus does in fact teach and speak rightly. He, he shows no partiality, but it does in fact truly teach the way of God. Did they believe that? No way. They didn't believe that at all, but they were flattering him, trying to get into his good graces and be kind of accepted by the people who were responding with a kind of joy to what Jesus was saying. Interestingly, that even amid their deception and the evil that was behind them, they still proclaimed truth about Jesus. Jesus' glory will not be squashed. His name is above every name, whether anybody thinks so or not. So the question, though, is specifically, is it lawful, according to the law of God, to give tribute to Caesar or not? This tribute to Caesar was, a, was like an additional taxation. You might imagine that they're already taxed to death by Rome and by tax collectors and whatnot. So this tribute was just like gifts to Caesar, just to kind of make him feel better about himself or something. So how, that tax was despised. That, that was, they hated that. Now, none of us enjoy taxation, but, but they, they really hated this. And to not pay it would be, you know, would get them in trouble. Kind of, kind of like us not paying our tax bills, right? We get in trouble with the IRS if we don't. So again, the question, is it lawful according to the law of God to pay this tax, and the spies thought they had Jesus cornered. And again, either way, he's going to get in trouble. Because if he says it's not legal, then Rome is going to come and get him. If he says it is legal, the people are going to dislike him or hate him. It's a pretty sneaky question. But Jesus wasn't deceived. Verse 23 states this, he perceived their craftiness. And while Luke doesn't give an account of this specifically, Matthew, who was standing right there, recounts more detail in his, when we read horizontally and we consider Matthew chapter 22, it says this, Jesus, aware of their malice, their craftiness, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? (laughs) And Jesus' perception was right on. 
He was keenly aware of what was happening. He saw right through them, and he always does. There is no cornering the omniscient Son of God. No craftiness, no hypocrisy, nor insecurity escapes him. Before the King of kings, all things, all people, all thoughts, everything that you think, everything that you are processing, whether it's online or whether it's in this room, God knows them all. It's, it's laid bare before him. A smile on the face, a little flattery, a little bit of kudos and seeming attention may get the approval of the people that are around you, but none of it blinds the omniscient eye of the one through whom all things were spoken into existence. They, they thought they were dealing with just a man, but this was no mere man. This was the God-man and sees into their very souls as the one who breathed them into existence, just, just as he does you and I this morning. Friends, you, you, you cannot hide from God. You cannot, you cannot corner Jesus. So again, the question, is it lawful or not? And Jesus does not answer the question. He goes way deeper than that question would, that, that the answer to that question would allow for. He doesn't answer that specific question because ultimately it's an ignorant question that's simply meant to trap him, and he knows it. So rather than answering that question as they would have expected, Jesus just simply states in the moment, man, I would like to be able to respond so quick like this to, to conundrum kind of questions. He just said, well, show me a coin. You got a coin, Pharisees? So they show him a coin. He's got the image of Caesar on the coin. And he states this point simply, holding the coin up, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the thing, the things that are God's. And that answer has no handles for them to grab onto whatsoever. They're dumbfounded. They're just like, they thought they had him cornered. They thought they were getting him, nailing him to the cross early. And they just were left like silenced. Their attempt had failed. The, the point that Jesus is making doesn't have to do with the limitation of a government's authority and whatnot, although plenty of books have been written about it. That, although, and there's plenty to talk about there as well. It's not like it's an empty thing. Jesus is simply, though, in this text, gloriously stating the ultimate truth that ultimate authority is due to God. Now, let me explain. James Edwards, one commentator I trust that, that we all trust, uh, he says this, that, that ultimate authority resided with God is clearly implied in Jesus' use of image. The same word used in Genesis 1.26 of humanity's creation in God's image. If coins bear Caesar's image, then they belong to Caesar. And then the same verb is applied also with reference to God. Humanity bears God's image. Humanity must therefore render ultimate submission to the God in whose image it was made. Now, some things are due to the emperor, but not everything is due to the emperor. The emperor demanded worship. The emperor demanded outright allegiance. And while some level of taxation was certainly appropriate, worship and primary allegiance was not his. He demanded it like Nebuchadnezzar did back in Daniel. But he does not get it 
Allegiance is not his. Worship is not his. Worship and absolute allegiance of humankind is God's, not Caesar's. Humanity bears not the image of Caesar, but each one of you in this room and each one of humanity throughout the ages, past, present, and future, we bear the image of God. Even Caesar belongs to God. Not one human does not belong to God. The scribes and the Pharisees were lost in the woods of their own rejection of Jesus and were thinking and processing entirely out of their self-centered guts and emotions. And people do that all the time today. Perhaps, perhaps you do. Well, we do. Man, we, we process out of our emotional sense. But people in this world do that as they, they set up straw man arguments and they throw up what they believe to be you know, novel religious conundrums that unless they have that answered, they're not going to bow the knee. You tell me this and then I'll bow the knee. Now, probably not. Pharisees and scribes weren't asking the question from a place of honest humility and trying to ask the question and trying to grapple to understand. They knew what they rejected. And as does as do people in this world today. Their intention is not to truly find truth and to bow the knee, but to discredit the God from whom they unknowingly exist and have their being in a purposeful intent to worship themselves. Not to worship anybody else, they want to worship themselves. Thus breaking commandment number one. Now perhaps you feel that your issue with Christianity or Jesus is watertight. that in essence you have Jesus cornered. But miles below the road of rejection that you have laid before you rests a foundational reality. That you can choose to believe this or choose to not believe it, but the most basic existential truth about yourself that there is is that you exist for God. And until grasped, you will continue grasping at the straws of your crumbling path. This is the situation with your unsaved neighbors. This is potentially the situation in your own heart this morning. This is the situation of the unreached peoples around the world grasping for why they exist. All humankind exists for God. You exist for God. The New City Catechism states, we are not our own, but we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Absolutely true. This is what Jesus is getting at. What is it that belongs to God? Well, Psalm 24 tells us the whole word, everything belongs to God, but specifically, we do. We belong to God. Each one of you in this room, each one of you online right now, you belong to God. You don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to this world. You belong to God. That's a, it's, a, it's a foundational existential question that unless that's answered correctly, you're a way off track. And if we're to give to God what is God's, 
and we are God's, then what is it we must give God but ourselves? In whole, not in part, in whole to God. What must we render to him? The answer is entirely clear. It has no nuance whatsoever. We must render ourselves to him. And anything less than that is to, is to kind of take commandment number one and commandment number two and just break them like outright. You've committed ultimate idolatry. You live for yourself, you put yourself over God. Idolatry. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We choose to die to ourselves and live for God because, because we're his. And our eyes have been opened to see that. You might see the difficulty when someone does not understand that they belong to God and why we must tell them. But we have to know it ourselves first. We choose to die to our Selves and our finances. We choose to die to ourselves and our families. We choose to die to ourselves and our professions and our mornings and our afternoons and our evenings in our leisure and our rest, our, our eating and our drinking and our whatever we are doing, 1 Corinthians 10. We do it all for the glory of God. And those who grasp that they belong to God, those who truly grasp they belong to God, live for Him. There is, there is no nuance to that. And so if you're not living for him, then what's the problem? The problem is at the core, at the deepest level, you do not understand. I do not understand that I belong to God. The psalmist says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I'll lift up the cup of salvation, call on the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Oh, Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. See, the person who understands that they're made for God, that they are created for God, and to have their being in God, and have their enjoyment in God is the person that is going to live for God by the power of the Spirit. Paul would say, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Why? Well, because Things like this are spoken in the Bible. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 speaks about you are sons of the Lord your God. You are sons of the Lord your God. Friends, if you are, have trusted in Jesus, you are a son and daughter of the Lord your God. You are a people holy to the Lord. Your God and the Lord has, has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. Which, which sounds a lot like 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, when Peter's saying, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a people for what? For his own possession. We are God's people. 
We belong to him. What greater mercy is there than to understand that we belong to God? And what kind of God is that? One who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the God whom the psalmist cries out to and prays in Psalm 103 as he rejoices in God's forgiveness and his healing and his redemption and justice and satisfaction and compassion and love and righteousness and faithfulness and on and on and on. This is, this is our God. This is the God whom we belong to. It's not the God whom we just kind of cower under. We, we come to him with, if our eyes have seen him, and, and beheld his glory, we come to him with joy unspeakable, contentment and satisfaction. Do you grasp, friends, that you belong to God? So Dan said last week, you can know something, but it doesn't have an effect on your heart. And I'm trying to make the case this morning, along with what Dan said last week, is that if it does not affect your heart, then somehow something's like you don't really grasp this reality, this grasp, this, this foundational reality of this existential question that everybody in the world's asking, why do I exist? We know the answer. You've been given the answer. Your eyes have been made open to the answer. Don't keep that answer to yourself, but live in the good of that answer that you belong to God. And so your life is God's living sacrifice, and you want, to, you want to either go and tell people or you want to make sure people are sent to tell people around this world who have no idea why they exist. They think they exist for this thing or this thing or, or whatever, just their situation. They need to know that they exist for God and are accountable to God. Do you grasp that you belong to God? For as you do, it will be observable as you surrender your will and your way and your lives and your families and your finances and your jobs and your relationships, when, when we truly grasp, that is effectually grasp that foundational reality of our existence, our faint and weary hearts, which we have so regularly, we want to know how to get out of that. Well, no, first and foremost, you belong to God, and nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, your Lord. This, this is the foundational reality. And so our faint and weary hearts like explode with purpose and, and meaning as we give our lives to the one who is worthy of our all. He is the one who is worthy of our all. And we're his, and our eyes have been made open that we follow him. The first and foremost foundational reality of our existence is that we belong to God. We exist for another, one who is worthy, the creator, the, the savior, our God, and that's worth sitting in for some time. But we need to move on. The second thing we need to grasp is that there is incomparable hope in the Son. Incomparable hope in the Son. Jesus' answer to the previous question silenced the scribes and the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, but the Sadducees were in the back scheming up their own plan to discredit Jesus. 
This is the only place that Luke mentions the Sadducees, and it's going to be the last place he mentions the Sadducees. But there were another group of religious leaders who would have been greatly bothered by Jesus' teaching, especially his teaching concerning the resurrection, because they were, as it says in the text, uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought Jesus was a false teacher, um, just like Pharisees did and, and other people did, but, but like from this bent in particular. So these are not honest questions that they're asking at this moment. They're not really... Um, uh, they, they already know the answer to their question because, because the question in their eyes just points out the ridiculousness of the resurrection. They're trying to trip Jesus up, and they're trying to trip up those who follow him. The, the trajectory of rejection in a person's heart is revealed most clearly in the kind of stance that already has their mind set up, already has their mind made up and is asking questions not out of honest curiosity or honest interest, but with the desire of tripping Jesus up and proving him a coward and proving him a false teacher and proving him not worthy of it all. It's the heart not of an honest skeptic or an honest questioner, but a cynic who has no intention to humbly grasp truth and so the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection at all, wants to discredit, they want to discredit Jesus uh, through making this, um, this ridiculous story up. Now, there's a reality of, of uh, um, a part of the Mosaic law that speaks about, uh, speaks about this kind of situation, but like with one or two people, not seven. It's almost like, it's almost like as they're telling the story, they're like, <laughs> and, and, another, and another brother marries and... <laughs> And, and then another brother marries, and it's just like, get to that point where it's just so ridiculous. They're like, we got Jesus cornered. This is so stupid. This is so stupid. Jesus is going to say, oh, well, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Well, Luke goes right to Jesus' response, but again, I want to go to Matthew and Mark to consider what it is he said in addition to what Luke states, states, because he says something really specifically important. He says this in Matthew 22, verse 29. He says, after, he tells, after they tell him this story, and who's going to, you know, who's going to be married to her in the resurrection because there's seven of them? He says, look, you, you, guys are, you guys are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And this is true of all who strive to make claims against God and against truth. They know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, ultimately rejecting both. Now, the Sadducees, they knew Scripture. They knew it really well, but as we will see, not so much. And you can know a lot about Scripture. And you can sit there and you can defend points in the Bible, and you can quote the Scripture passages you learned when you were little or when you just learned this morning or something, but God doesn't have your heart. You know things, but you really don't know things. You, you, you in fact, do not really know Scripture, and in essence, at the, at, the, at the base root of it, you deny the power of God. The first part of Jesus' response is to tell them that the age to come is going to be so fundamentally different from this age that it makes the question rather foolish. It really doesn't even tackle the, the specific question there. 
The age to come, Jesus, is going to be entirely different than now. No need for marriage like there is today. No need for childbearing to keep humanity rolling after parents die. Death can't happen anymore. It's not just like it will not happen. It cannot happen anymore. It's absolutely and fundamentally different than how they're thinking about it. Now, all sorts of crazy teaching has come from this small little passage about the resurrection, about the fact that, like, we're not going to know our spouse in heaven, and, and like, it's not going to matter at all, and all that kind of stuff. The reality is, like, friends, like, don't, you don't have to go there in this text at all. And the reality is, I just want to speak to this for a moment, that in the resurrection, that the gift that God has given me in my wife, Joy, and the gift that I think that God has given her in me, lesser gift, but still a gift. Um, it's not as though we're going to be distant from each other and like, like, I think I know, I think I've seen you before. This is, this is going to be, there's just no need for marriage anymore. There's no need for marriage. Why, why marriage? Well, marriage will, could produce children and, 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 and then also reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. But when we are resurrected before the one whom it was to echo and, and image forth, it's no longer necessary. So is joy going to be important to me? Is your spouse going to be important to you in heaven? Are your children going to be important to you in heaven? Absolutely. Is Christ overall? Absolutely. Why can it not be both? It can totally be both. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So friends, don't buy into a bunch of other things that really don't have anything to do with this text. Jesus is specifically stating some things to the Sadducees to correct them and then takes it a little further to help us understand the resurrection just a little bit more. Death can't happen again. It's absolutely and fundamentally different than how they're thinking. And Paul would tell the Corinthian church years later concerning the resurrection, he says this, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's not that he hasn't explained some of those things, but look, we're not going to understand everything until we see it, and we're going to be like, whoa! That's, a, that's the most amazing thing ever. And I get to discover this for eternity? Now, Jesus is schooling the Sadducees here. The Sadducees think they're smart, and they are smart, but they're dumb. The Sadducees are spiritually dumb. If the Sadducees actually knew the Bible, as they would have professed to have known the Bible, they would not be asking such an ignorant question. So Jesus continues to help them out in their understanding of the resurrection by taking them, in verse 37, right to the book of Exodus where they would have understood this passage. It's the burning bush passage where God reveals himself as the great I am. But what's the passage that, that Jesus takes them to? Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, really, where God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, by the time God said that to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for a long time. And the point Jesus is making, and the point that God made back in the day, is that he is, not just was, he is, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in stating that, he makes the clear point that there is life after 
after this life, and there is a resurrection. Verse 38, because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus could have taken another passage, a passage like the text in Daniel chapter 12, where where, um, it says this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, but he didn't take them there. He he certainly could have, because that speaks to the resurrection, does it not? but he takes them all the way back to a foundational passage from the first five books, from the second one. The Pentateuch, the Torah, right to the five books of the law, right to the book of Moses, right to the very beginning, the very books they likely had memorized, but memorization doesn't mean heart memorization. And even in Exodus chapter 3, you see the doctrine of the resurrection. It's a biblical reality, life after death. But the Sadducees were blind to the truth of it, though it stared them right in the face. And so Jesus is wiping their rejections away right and left. And in verse 40, we read that they were silenced. And the Pharisees loved it. See, these were the Sadducees. Pharisees and Sadducees really didn't get along very well. So the Pharisees, they, they respond, they respond like some of the scribes answered, that's the Pharisees, disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, um, they were like, teacher, you've spoken well. Well, it's not because they necessarily agree with Jesus. They hate Jesus, want to kill him. What they like is that the Sadducees are made foolish. That's right. What Jesus said, totally true. Totally true. You guys are morons. Sadducees were silenced. Pharisees had already been silenced, already made to look foolish. Jesus' intent is not to make people look foolish, but when they're coming at him with rejection and with ridiculous questions, he's just pointing out the reality. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, Sadducees were silenced as well. And I wonder if you are blind to the resurrection this morning. How has the guarantee of the resurrection informed your life this week? How has it informed your weariness, spiritual, emotional, psychological? How has it informed your spiritual apathy? How has it informed your sorrows? How has it informed your joys? Because the resurrection is meant to inform our lives given over to God. Grasping the foundational truth of the resurrection causes our faint hearts to explode into lives of joyful offering to the one who is worthy of our all. Now, how so? How does that happen? Well, Jesus makes a or at least Luke recounts this small little phrase in verse 35. And he says this, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. This little, this little caveat here. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. In mid-sentence, Jesus makes a distinction just as the Bible does from cover to cover. All humanity, everyone's made in the image of God. Everyone is accountable to God. Everyone is made for God. 
And all humanity will be divided into two categories, those considered worthy and those who are not. And in light of the rest of Scripture, this worthiness isn't to be seen as some sort of inherent um, quality in a specific person, nor is it attained by hard work or personal effort. Rather, it's all of grace, only by the gospel, only through Christ, only by faith alone in Christ alone. It's all grace. Those who have been given the righteousness of Christ, that's how anyone is accounted worthy to attain the age to come and the resurrection of the righteous. The resurrection of the righteous is only for those who are counted righteous. The, 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 the problem is not everyone is accounted righteous, right? Actually, no, not one. Everyone made in the image of God. Everyone belongs to God, and not, not one person can attain the resurrection of the dead because not one is righteous. You look to Romans 3.10, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Isaiah 53, all over the place. There is no one righteous. And we are in desperate need of another person's righteousness. Not just another, another person's righteousness, but as we see throughout Scripture, the God-man, His righteousness. And when we get that righteousness, we're counted righteous. It's a clear connection between the hope of the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second foundational reality of our existence, friends, is, is first one is we belong to God. The second is that there's life after death. Daniel chapter 12, 2 again says some will be raised to eternal life and some to eternal contempt. You either look at Matthew 25 or Revelation chapter 20 or many other verses that speak of that specific thing, the resurrection of the righteous where there'll be no more death and joy of being made alive to God eternally is only for those who become worthy. And we become worthy by faith through grace alone and Christ alone. When, when we truly grasp that second foundational reality of our existence, our faint and weary hearts explode with purpose and meaning and hope and joy. And it's an incomparable hope as we give our lives to the one who's worthy of her all. A hope in Christ that far outlasts and is infinitely better than anything we experience here. And we'll consider the resurrection more in weeks to come, but let me just state a few more things before we move on. Jesus teaches this here in the face of opposition and mocking to communicate something really important, and that is the resurrection is vital to understand. It's foundational reality. And that's not lost on Paul when he states that if there's no resurrection, then we among all men are to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15. Just being a... Christian, growing up in a Christian country or a Christian family or living a good life is not enough for Paul, nor God for that matter. In fact, it's pitiable. If there's no resurrection, that is. If there's no resurrection, then just being a Christian is like... <laughs> Like, just kind of dumb. Just do what you want to do if there's no resurrection. If there's no age to come, if there's no God, if there's no resurrection for the righteous, then, then man, that's terrible and pitiable. If there's no God, there's no judgment and no afterlife, and we should just go along with what the world offers and just enjoy it. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Everyone should just do what's right in his own eyes if that makes him happy. 
And of course, that's the way the world offers. You strip, strip God away and choose to reject the fact that you belong to God and that there is no life after death. What, do you, what are you left with? Well, this life, so party on. But if there is a God, and if there is a resurrection, then it matters how you live. It's not just something to argue about with the Sadducees or in the classroom or in the church or in community groups or in families. It impacts the way you live day after day, moment after moment, and forms your encouragement along the trials of this life. And Jesus confirms that all the difficulty, all the disappointments, all the sorrows that you experience today are going to be repaid in that day to come. Not every sorrow will depart in this, on this side of glory, but that day, that day will make it all worthwhile because he is worthy of her all. How does the resurrection inform your day? The day that death will be no more. And the hope that was once future is realized in its entirety for eternity. I mean, I know that each of us know about heaven, but do we live in the good of it? 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, Philippians 1, 21 through 23, Romans, uh, chapter, uh, yeah, Romans chapter 7, 9, 21, 22, Isaiah 25, Matthew 5, 7, 19, John chapter 14, Colossians 3, Ezekiel 28, on and on and on. It's all over the place in the Bible. When's the last time you've sat? I'm satisfied in the hope to come. Friends, there is indeed life after death, incomparable hope in the Son that we must grasp today, real life promised, real life guaranteed to all who wholly belong to God. Those who belong to Him live in light of the promised world to come. Do you live in the good of the resurrection? Amid the difficulties of this life, we were made for God, and we were made to enjoy Him both now and forevermore. When we truly grasp the foundational realities of our existence like that one, man, our faint hearts explode into lives of joyful offering to the one who's worthy of our all. Final foundational reality, we must grasp the Son. We must grasp that the Son is worthy of our all. Verse 41, Jesus now is the one asking the question. And what was his purpose in asking this question in verse 41? Again, go horizontally, look over to Matthew, consider what Matthew, Matthew quotes in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 and 42. The Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. So Jesus then, in our text, goes on to say precisely more about that specific thing in verses 41 through 44. The issue at hand is Jesus' identity. We belong to God. There is a resurrection, and Jesus really is who he says he is. These are the three foundational realities that we must grasp this morning and for the rest of our lives. The Pharisees state that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. Correct. You remember the blind man from a number of weeks ago that, uh, in Jericho that called out Jesus in that, Son of David, have mercy on me, he says. 
And the Pharisees had heard that, and they were ticked off by it because, well, the Son of David is a Old Testament passage that Jesus is getting at here in this moment, identifying himself as the Son of David, as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Pharisees so eloquently just stated. So in our text, Jesus has been answering questions laced with malice regarding not only his teaching, but his very identity as the self-professed Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, the Christ. And, and he takes the religious leader straight to Scripture to reveal his identity one more time. And he does so through a question. The question pretty much is, how is it possible that David's son could be David's Lord? He, here, here there is difficulty for the Pharisees. This is, this is not a conundrum. This is some truth that they simply cannot grasp with their own little idolatrous kingdom crumbling all around them. In Jewish culture, it was, it was believed that the ancestors are greater than the descendants. So how is it that David, and not just, not just any David, King David, how is it that King David would call his son Lord? Now take a closer look with me at Psalm 110 where this quote comes from. First thing, it says you'll notice it's like a straight-up quote. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Yahweh says to sovereign, sit at my right hand. Now, the right hand of God signifies the place of honor, the place of power. There is no higher place. There is no higher place where anyone might be placed. But this is the place to where the Messiah, David's Lord, the sovereign, is directed. This Adonai is directed. In Exodus, it says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then the prophet Micaiah had a vision of God in the dark days of the rule of King Ahab. And this is what he saw in 1 Kings 22. He said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. And of course, we know that Isaiah, if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, you know that Isaiah had a similar vision. He saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. These are all the same kind of things, the vision where the seraphim hovered and flew in the presence of the Lord. And Psalm 110, the Lord does not tell David's Lord to stand in the presence, but to sit, to sit in the very place of highest honor and power. So the question is, who in the world is this Lord, this David's Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, who is my Lord? And so the psalmist had more to record for us to help us. 110 verse 1, Psalm 110 verse 1, Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now these words are astounding. Listen to the Lord God uh, declare that he is working everything in order that every enemy might be brought in submission to the one who is David's Lord, the, the God who works all things for the glory of his own name, and he will not share his glory with another, and his own good pleasure he does all things, declares that here he is determined to bring every last enemy to bow in submission to this guy, to David's Lord, to the Messiah to the Christ, to the Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David. And so absolutely complete will that submission be that they will be like a footstool, his enemies will be like a footstool for the Messiah to rest his feet upon. Now who is this person? Well, the person is no less than the sovereign one, Adonai, King Jesus. 
He's not a political liberator. He's an infinitely more involved person. He is Lord in, in the most enormous sense. The Messiah is the son of David after his human nature, but he's more than a mere man. He is God incarnate. He is the son of God. This is the one by whom and for whom all was made. This is the one for whom all is due. This is the one who came into the world to save sinners. This is the one who came to his own only to be rejected by them and be crucified by them. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. He's heaven's delight. He's the Father's beloved, and he's his unique son. He lives on in the power of indestructible resurrected life, and he's going to return for his own to judge the world, having been given all authority as the Son of Man. And as such, he is the one to whom all nations will one day give an account, Philippians 2.11. He is worthy of it all. The Son is worthy of our all. This is what Jesus was stating so emphatically, and it was so authoritative and so clear that it silenced these men as well. Don't read it in Luke, but read it in Matthew. No one was able to answer him a word. See, the Lord's authority, Jesus' authority, causes man to be silent before his glory. Now, do you see the pattern? People can question all day long about who Jesus is and what his claim is on their life, what he's doing about the hope of Christianity and the truth of Jesus silences them. If it does not silence them now, it will unfortunately, sadly, and devastatingly silence them on that day, as far as the rejection goes, there will only be one thing for them to say, and that is, you are Lord. But it'll be too late. For the people listening on that day to Jesus, may have simply gone in one ear and out the other, but, the, but for the ones that Luke is writing to, the teaching about the character of the Messiah, of Jesus, would have been understood. It, it teaches that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, that he has overcome sin, that he's overcome death, that he's overcome Satan, and that God has given him the authority to judge the world. He's the one to whom all nations will one day bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's not only the judge, he's the Savior to all who would believe on him. Back in Luke chapter 2, what was we heard, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, say it, Christ the Lord. Chapter 1, even while Jesus was in the womb of Mary, Elizabeth cries out, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We've seen it all the way along from, Genesis, from Luke chapter 1 all the way to now, and we'll see it all the way to the end. The truth throughout is that Jesus was, he is, and he will always be Lord, and as such deserves our very lives. And questions from those who reject his lordship are many, but for those who have been given eyes to see a life given to God, enjoying him and trusting him as Lord is unquestionably and increasingly becoming the very heart of our existence. And Jesus has taught that those who belong to him, those who live for him, those who live in light of the promised world to come, those who belong to him, know Jesus as King, Christ, Messiah, Savior, and Lord. And when we truly grasp these foundational realities of our existence, our faint hearts explode into lives of joyful offering to the one who's worthy of her all. Now, as, as we conclude, we come to the last little section here of, of the, the text that we're taking this morning, and we have a visual comparison that's offered to us. One is a group, 
the wide gate, and one is an unseeming individual, narrow gate. First example is the group, the scribes, those who don't truly grasp the foundational realities of their existence. Again, they know a lot of stuff, but they don't grasp the realities that we've talked about this morning. And when we read in verses 45 and following, it's not a state of immediate judgment against them, although greater condemnation is promised to them at the end of the chapter. Rather, it seems that Jesus is simply warning the disciples whom he's now turned to, and his attention is on them, and pretty much he's saying, guys, don't listen to these guys and do not be like these guys. They're self-saturated. They walk about with an intent on people seeing their importance. They, they look for public praise. They look for special favor in religious settings. They pray long for the praise of men and in an impotent exchange for what could be the righteous effective prayer or an effective prayer of a righteous man. Their wealth comes from defrauding people, widows specifically, and love for themselves usurps love for others and care for the widow and obedience to God. They simply worked to maintain a religious facade. They had to keep up appearances. They could put on a good show. They could, like Sarah was saying here, they could sing all day long, but their heart's far from God. Crying out, what a beautiful name it is, and your heart is far, far away. They had to keep up these appearances. They had to give the good show. There was not any sense of truly and humbly giving to God what was God's, and that is their entire life. No sense of or belief in the wonders of the promised resurrection through the imputed righteousness of the Messiah. No belief that Jesus is the Lord of creation, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he's the Lord of life, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Son of man, that he's the Son of David, the one to whom all, has been, all authority has been given to him and whom will return to judge the living and the dead. There is as another biblical author states, no fear of God before these people's eyes. And listen, as I read this, the Spirit convicted me of like, there's, there's some little scribes flying around my heart. Compare that group with the unseeming widow. In verse 1 of chapter 21, Jesus looks up. He sees the rich putting gifts into the treasury, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's, that's fine. They're giving out of their abundance, and that's, that's cool. We give out of our abundance also. Unless it's for self-glorification, like the scribes he's just described. But what strikes him is a poor widow, a widow that likely has been preyed upon by the scribes, as mentioned above. And here's what marks her. She knew... She was not her own. She belonged to God, and she was absolutely dependent on him. Her hope certainly doesn't seem to be in the wealth of the world, but rather the promised treasure in heaven. And so we know that because she literally gives all that she has. It's an unlikely outcast who actually grasps the foundational realities of her existence and has caused her faint and weary heart to explode into a kind of generosity that holds nothing back. She gave her all. Now, friends, all of us have little scribes inside of our hearts, a little religious facade, a little desire for glory, a little desire to give unto ourselves what belongs to us. And the Lord Jesus warns us to beware of not only those who exhibit this kind of anti-faith, but is gracious to warn us of the potential of the very same thing at work in our own hearts. 
And so may we turn, by the grace and mercy of God, away from the way of the scribe, away from the way of the crowds, away from the broad path that leads to destruction towards the way of the impoverished widow, the narrow way, grasping the foundational realities of our existence, that we belong to God, that we do have incomparable hope of the eternal Son, the very one who is worthy of our absolute all.